Andrew Womack Ministries presents this message titled, God's Not Guilty. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. We're going to talk about how that God is not the source of our problem, that God is not the one that puts things on us, where they come from. And this is important to know, because you've got to be able to resist the devil. James chapter 4, verse 7 says, Therefore submit yourselves unto God, resist the devil, and he shall flee from you. And it's a command, you have to resist the devil. The word resist, according to the dictionary, means to actively fight against. And uh, you can't actively fight against something if you think that God has a hand in it. If you think that God is allowing the things that's happening to you to come upon you or that God is the one that's doing it to you to teach you something, you can't actively fight against your problem and against those things that have come against you lest you find yourself fighting against God. So this is something that's really important. Boy, sometimes you have to get plumb furious with the devil and with your situation to see victory over the thing. And so you've got to realize that God has no hand in the things that have come against you. You've got to realize where they come from and the reason that they come against you. If you don't, then you're going to wind up submitting to those problems, in, at least in part. And the scripture we'll use probably a bunch of times now, we use it every time we get together, Romans 6, 16. says, Know ye not therefore that to whom you yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If you submit yourself to something that Satan is trying to come at you with, thinking that it's God or for some reason God put it on you, you deserve it or you're punished or you're being chastised through it, any of these things, then you actually are submitting yourself under the control of the devil. Satan is going to lord it over you and there is nothing that God can do to get you out of it because you have yielded yourself to the devil. Everybody see that? Amen. First chapter of the book of James. We're going to answer some questions tonight. I believe it will help you on this. James chapter 1. It says, a serv James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Now, these scriptures right here have been used. People have taken these scriptures to say that if you want patience, what you need to do is pray for tribulation. The more you're tribulated, the more patience that you're going to have. I heard a man teach that one time, and as a result of this kind of teaching, I came back and I taught this uh, young people's group that we met together with to start praying that way. I started praying that way, and within just a very short time, I was drafted and in the army and over in Vietnam. <laughs> And I had a real good friend that I prayed with. She started praying this way, and within two weeks, she had acute leukemia and was dying. And she finally died of acute leukemia. And we prayed and asked God to heal her. But you see, we submitted to that thing as God doing it. We never resisted it. We never stood against it. We took the doctor's treatment. We believed what the doctor said. Of course, we didn't know very much of the Word of God. We didn't know that by his stripes we were healed. We didn't know how to act on it. We didn't know anything. But the reason that came upon her, she prayed. She heard a testimony about a boy that just was too embarrassed to witness. And so he said, Lord, kill me if that's the only way you can use me. And the guy got killed in a football accident and in his funeral. Four people got saved. Now, we heard a testimony like that from an evangelist. And so we started praying, Lord, do that to me. Lord, kill me. Lord, put cancer on me. And she prayed for it. And within two weeks, she had acute leukemia. It was not an accident. She said out of her own mouth, she was the best friend to Debbie and I mean to Jamie and me, and uh, she said out of her own mouth that she had prayed for that so that God could use it. And it was no accident that it came upon her. It wasn't God that put it upon her. It was Satan. Satan can take advantage of your prayers, and this is something you need to learn about prayer. Just throwing a few words out to God doesn't mean a thing. There's all kinds of people that pray. The drunks pray to God when they get in trouble. Everybody in the foxhole is praying to God. That's not it. Your prayer's got to be ordered according to the Word of God. The Scripture says in from Mark chapter 11, verses 23 and 24, that when you pray, you're going to have whatsoever things you say. If you say the wrong things, you're going to have it. And we've talked about that, remember, when we talked about what you say is what you get about the tongue. That if you sit there and confess, my husband's the sorriest, rottenest, no good thing, Lord, do something for him. Well, you're going to get what you confess. You confess he's a sorry, rotten, no good thing, and he's going to stay sorry, rotten, no good. 
You ought to ask God to save them and then start praising God that he's straightening out, amen, and start confessing the word and you'll get what you say is what Mark chapter 11 verse 23 says. And it's the same thing in prayer. If you pray amiss, if you pray, Lord, put troubles and temptations and trials on me. I've got to have patience. I need to be taught. I need to grow and learn. If you start praying that, you're opening up the door to the devil to come in and answer your prayer. You need to watch what you say and realize this truth. And so I heard a man teach that Satan was God's messenger boy. That if you got a problem, that if the devil's bothering you, that God's trying to get your attention. Now, some of you may think, oh, that's a little far-fetched, but that's what all of us have thought at one time or another. I've heard people that have never been around much of the gospel at all. Somebody dies in their family, and they say, I don't know why the Lord did this. There must be some purpose. And then the old religious people come along and say, oh, bless your heart. Oh, God, all things work together for good to them that love God. God's got to have a purpose in it. That's a lie. Amen. We're going to get into that and share that. But you don't need to fall for that kind of stuff. We're going to answer that question from Romans chapter 8, verse 28. This is not saying that God puts trials and tribulations upon you to, to give you patience and make you perfect. The Scripture did not say that your trials and tribulations make you perfect. The Scripture says, let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Patience is what makes you perfect and entire, not trials and tribulations. Patience is what makes you perfect and entire. If, if tribulations made you perfect, well, then all of us would have been perfected a long time ago, right? Because we've had tribulations, we've had problems. That's not it. I can show you some people that have had more tribulations than me, and they aren't near as perfected in the Word as what I am. And I'm not saying that to exalt me. I'm just saying I know that God's done some things in my life. I can see that He's changed me. I can show you some of my best friends. I can show you one of my very best friends received the baptism of the Holy Ghost the same night that I did, and he has had trials and tribulations and everything come his way, and he is stuck right where he was seven years ago. So trials and tribulations are not what perfect you and make you perfect. Oh, you. And so trials and tribulations do not perfect you. Your patience perfects you, and it's a truth that when you get into a fight, when you get into a trial and a tribulation, of course, if you fight it and if you resist it, you're going to gain from it because you're going to win a victory. And this goes right along with the scripture from Romans chapter 5, verse 3, where he says that we glory, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, and not only so, but we glory also in tribulations, knowing this, that tribulation worketh patience. Patience, experience, experience, hope, and hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our heart. That's the exact same thinking. And what he's talking about is, he says, we're rejoicing in the fact that someday we're going to be with Jesus, that we're going to receive a glorified body, that the fight is going to be over. But he says, not only are we rejoicing in that, he says, I'm rejoicing right here, not only in the sweet by and by, but in the rotten now and now, amen. <laughs> I am rejoicing because I know that my tribulation works patience, and patience is going to make experience, experience is going to make hope, and I am not going to be ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in my heart. You see, he was not praising God that God put these things upon him. Tribulations and trials are going to come because you're walking in the earth. Because we have an adversary, because you're breathing, you're going to be tried and tribulated, but don't think that God did it to you. It didn't say that God did it. Now, this will be explained further when we get into Romans chapter 8, verse 28. But God is not the one that allows problems to come upon you. Now, it's true that if you'll fight your problems and operate in faith, you'll be the better when you win over them. But God did not put those tribulations upon you, and God didn't allow it. There's a similar example here to like a soldier. You can take a soldier, and, uh, and like, for instance, when I went into the Army, they taught me in boot camp what I was supposed to learn. Then they sent me into the battle. They did not send me into the battle to make me a better soldier. They didn't send me into the battle to teach me what I was supposed to know. That's what I learned in boot camp, right? If you send a soldier, if you just drafted him and put him in the battle and said, boy, this trial and tribulation is going to really perfect him. He's going to come out the better soldier for it. He might learn a tremendous lesson if he lives through it. But he may not live through it. That's not the way that the government teaches you to fight the war. Sure, you may be improved through a battle, but you don't go out into the battle to learn anything. You go out into the battle to act on what you've already learned and to overcome that thing. 
if you submit to your enemy and think, well, this guy's coming to help teach me how to be a better soldier and buddy up with him, you're going to be killed. That enemy did not come to perfect you and to make you better. He came to kill you. Well, that's the way trials and tribulations are. Satan is the author of them. Satan is the one that comes and fights against us. The purpose of it is to kill you, to steal and destroy from you. And a lot of Christians have sided up with it, and every time something bad happens, say, I wonder why God did this. If you do that, you can't resist that thing with your whole heart. Because if you think that God's got a hand in it, are you going to sit there and resist God and rebuke God and tell Him to get out of your way? No, if you think that God had a purpose in your trial and tribulation, you're going to submit to it at least in part. And if you do that, all you've got to do is give the devil an inch, and he'll take a mile. He doesn't need any more, and you'll have it and you'll get killed by your enemy. The Lord teaches us through his word. That's the way that the Lord instructs us. Amen. Come on in. Trials and tribulations, they come to kill, steal, and destroy. Just like John chapter 10 says, God comes to set us free. And it's important that you realize this. One scripture in, over here in the 13th verse of the first chapter of James, or let's start reading with verse 12. It says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptation. Now, see right here, some people have taken this phrase like, blessed is the man that endures temptation, and they say, well, that's right. I'm just enduring my problems. I'm suffering for the Lord. Man, I've heard so many people say, oh, I'm just suffering for the Lord. Fully on that kind of stuff, amen? The only kind of suffering you're suffering from the Lord is afflictions and persecutions. Sickness, if you're bearing sickness, you aren't suffering for the Lord. If you're bearing poverty, you aren't suffering for the Lord. You're suffering for yourself and for the devil. God doesn't want you to suffer those things. Amen? When he's talking about blessed is the man that endureth temptation, the word endure does not mean just to put up with and somehow or another struggle through and somehow, you know, it'll last and you'll make it. No, the word endure, if you'll look it up in the dictionary, the word endure means to persevere. If you look up the word persevere, the word persevere means to go through it. It's an action. It's a fight. It's resisting. Just like we started talking about from James chapter 4, verse 7. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. A person that is enduring a trial or a tribulation, say for instance, Satan hits me with a sickness. If I'm enduring that sickness, I'm fighting against it tooth and toenail. Amen. I'm doing everything through the word of God that I know to resist it. That's enduring that temptation. Now, a person that says, oh, I prayed, and I'm enduring until the battle's won, and they got their feet propped up in the bed, and they got the, they're laying in bed and got somebody rubbing their thieving brow and popping pills to them and watching television and so, sucking soda waters and things like that. <laughs> they may sit there and say, I'm enduring this for the Lord, but they aren't. They have given over. They're acting sick. Man, I don't lay in bed during the day if I'm, if I'm well. I got too much to be doing. I don't sit there and take pills. I don't go to the doctor. I don't take medication because I'm well, amen. A person that's doing those other things does not believe they're well. They are not resisting the sickness. They're submitting to it, amen. And so you've got to see that, that that is not an example of enduring. I've heard people say, oh, I'm just enduring these things for the Lord. And if you're enduring it, that means that you're up acting well, that you're acting like you're overcoming that thing. You're resisting it. You're praising God. You're doing everything from the Word of God that it says. That's enduring temptation. And it says, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. That scripture is simply saying that if you'll stand and resist and stand steadfast, even in the midst when Satan's trying to put something on you, God's going to give you the crown of life. You're going to be rewarded for it. In other words, don't you be weary and well done. You're going to reap in due season. He's not telling you that blessed are you for putting up with your problems. Enduring does not mean to put up. Patience doesn't mean to put up either. If you look up patience in the dictionary, the dictionary definition of patience says the capacity of calm endurance. So this word endurance in verse 12 and patience is the same thing. It's talking about the same thing. And it's the capacity of calm endurance. My little simple definition of patience is faith active over a prolonged period of time. Now that'll help you if you look at it that way. Patience is faith. It's an action. It's a resistance. It's acting on the Word of God, but it's over a prolonged period of time. You may release faith for something momentarily, and most things that we believe for, your, your faith comes just like that. 
But there are certain things Satan will enter in and begin to hinder you. We've talked about hindrances to prayer, and some people don't realize this, that your prayer may not come to pass like that. You've got a devil, and Satan may fight against you and try and keep your prayer from coming. That's where patience enters in. Let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Many people release a little squirt of faith, but when they don't see the thing come to pass, they don't ever add any patience to their faith. They get discouraged, they let it go, and they miss out on what God's got for them. Patience must be added to faith. Hebrews chapter 6 says that Abraham obtained the promise through patience and faith. He obtained it. And so you've got to realize that, that, that um, patience must be added to faith, and it's a capacity of calm endurance. Verse 13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Now that scripture, if you'll put it together with the first part of this chapter, makes it clear that God is not the source of your problem. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Now somebody's going to say, Well now, wait a minute. What about Job? What about some of these things in the Old Testament? Job is a whole other subject. And I had not got time to go into all of Job, but I'm simply going to say this, that Job did not have the covenant that we had. Job did not have James chapter 1, verse 13, that says, God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. If Job had have had it, everything would have been different, amen, but Job didn't have it. Job was even before the days of Abraham. He didn't even have the covenants of promise that there was going to be a... He was before the nation of Israel. He didn't know anything. There wasn't a law revealed. There wasn't nothing. Now, there is some insight, a little bit, that I've got on the book of Job. Not as much as I should, but I can say that if you'll study it, you'll find out that God isn't like a lot of people have said about through the book of Job. But we can basically answer it by saying that that's in an old covenant. We got a new covenant, and right here it is written in black and white for us. It says in the new covenant, God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. And also you can look at every person in the Old Testament that those things came upon. Look at Miriam when the leprosy of God rose up in her forehead. Uzziah, the leprosy of God came up in him because he went in and offered sacrifices which it wasn't, wasn't lawful for a king to do, only the priest. And it said that God struck him with leprosy until the day of his death. And you can look at a bunch of other people. You can look at the sickness and the disease and all of these kind of things. Look at the death angel that struck in the land of Egypt and say, people say, what about that? God did that. Yeah, God did that. Amen. I can show you the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, verses 15 through the end of the chapter that says God's going to do everything to you. Curse you, put mildew, blight, everything upon you. But you can never find where it was a blessing. It was always a curse. It was always a punishment. It was a judgment upon sin. Miriam, before the time that the leprosy of God hit her, she led the people out with timbrels and dances. She was a leader in the nation of Israel. She was used mightily by God. When Aaron and Miriam stood against Moses and the leprosy of God hit her for blaspheming against Moses, never again is she spoken of as being used. Boy, that was it for Miriam. She was out of the picture. Uzziah remained a leper until the day of his death, and after the leprosy hit him, it says that he was shut up until the day of his death and lived in a separate house by himself and remained a leper. You can read all of those things. They were curses. They were judgments. And the new covenant, the good news is that I am not going to be judged for my sin. Jesus bore that judgment. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessings of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through faith. So the curse, the judgment, the punishment is off of me. Amen? So therefore, you can see instances where God uh, judged people, punished them, did those things in the Old Testament, but it was not blessings. They were curses. They were punishments. And God's judgment is not coming upon you and me tonight. Amen? Well, there's a lot of people that don't understand that. I've had some people say, oh, that's a cop-out. You're just trying to forget what happened in the Old Testament and say that that was a different covenant and we got a new one. And they say, that doesn't change a thing. Well, that is the most ignorant thing from the Word of God I've ever heard. The new covenant does change something, amen? If there's not a difference in the new and the old covenant, why have a new one? That's what Hebrews is saying. He says that the old covenant didn't make anything perfect, but the bringing in of the new covenant did. 
This is a superior covenant. It is more secure than anything that was spoken in the Old Testament. And the New Covenant says that God does not tempt any man, neither can he be tempted with evil. So don't you sit there and say that your afflictions and persecutions and things are God putting them on you to perfect you and to give you patience. Notice it did not say that your patience came from your trials and tribulations and temptations. Your trials and temptations do not produce patience. They simply, as patience operates and overcomes those trials and temptations, your patience will be made stronger because it's one of victory. But your patience comes from the Word of God. Let's look in Romans chapter 15, I believe it is. Romans 15. Romans 15, verse 4. It says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now that right there says that, that patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Patience and comfort come from the Scriptures, not from your trials and tribulations. That's the reason everybody has been trialed and tried and tribulated, but not everybody has had patience operative within them because they haven't been in the Word. I told you an example about one of my best friends that has been through a lot more than what I've been through, and yet I've grown more in the Lord and seen more happen than he has. It's because he did not get anything out of his trials and tribulations. I got in the Word. God's Word has been giving me patience, faith over a prolonged period of time, and that's making me perfect. He's had more problems than I have, and they haven't perfected him yet. And this is important that you learn this lesson because we have submitted to problems wondering why God did it. God is not the author of all of the junk that we're seeing come to pass. That's a cop-out what it is. People have thrown everything over on God because they don't want to own up to their own responsibility. Rather than just sit there and say, I've missed it somewhere, let's throw it over on God and say, well, it must be God's will that this doesn't come to pass. You know, that's how doctrines got started, that God doesn't heal anymore and that miracles don't happen anymore. I prayed about it, and I'm just really sure this is andeology, but I believe that this is from the Lord. <laughs> that the way that stuff got started was that people were believing that God did miracles, but the faith, the people themselves got out of the Word of God, quit operating in faith. The faith of God began to wane, and as a result, they started praying for people to be healed, to see miracles happen when it didn't happen rather than sit there and admit oh something's wrong with me I must not be believing or there's doubt in me rather than admit that they had wrong they begin to say well God must have some reason in them not being healed push it over on God because God's not defending himself audibly right now he's keeping records amen there's coming a day but right now see they can get by with it and so they throw it over on God well God must have a purpose maybe you maybe you're sick because you need to get taught something so God's not going to heal you. Maybe this is God chastising you, see, and that's how all these kind of doctrines and things get started is because people are trying to justify themselves rather than to justify God. And it's just nothing but a cop-out because they don't want to admit that the problem's with us. Brothers and sisters, God is not the one putting the problems on us. Satan is the one doing it, and he's doing it because we've allowed him. I heard a man come back one time from a funeral and he said that his uh, nephew and a girl that was riding with him and some other young people had been killed in a car wreck and he said it was the most tragic thing he'd ever seen and he was just crying he said I don't know why God allowed that but there must have been a purpose God didn't allow it God didn't do it God didn't have a hand in it can you all see that now some people say what are you saying that God didn't allow are you now, how can you say God didn't allow it when God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing, there is nothing God can't do? How could God not allow it? It may not have been his will, but God had to at least allow it. That's not true. There are certain things that God can't do. Amen? That looks like it shook a few of you. But God cannot lie is what the Scripture says, Hebrews chapter 6. God can't change. Because he said in his word, Hebrews 13, 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Psalms 138, verse 2 says that God's exalted his word even above his name. His word holds this whole universe together. And if God was to break his word, this universe would fall apart at the seams. This word holds the universe together. So God cannot violate his word. God gave you and me authority and power. He says... 
I, all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. What he did, he committed that power right to us. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says that after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, you shall receive power. God committed power unto you. He gave you the power to resist the devil. If you're praying and saying, Oh God, get the devil off my back. Lord, change this situation. You're whistling into the air because God can't do it. God gave that power to you. Now, it's not your power. Some people would sit there and say, Are you saying that, man, you're the one that does everything? God doesn't have nothing to do with it. No, it's God doing it. It's his power. It's his authority, but it's in me, and it's committed unto me. If I don't move, God can't move. If I don't say, Satan, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus, God's power cannot drive the devil off. God's power is in us. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 says, that unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. If you don't let God's power work in you, it won't work. We can tie God's hand. We can stop God from operating. God's not wanting you to be sick. I can verify that by a lot of scriptures, but God doesn't want you sick, but God will let you be sick if you don't take what he gave you and use it because he committed that authority and power to you, and until you move, he can't move. If you submit to that sickness, thinking God put it on you, God's teaching you, God's judging you, or if this is just normal, God doesn't do these things anymore, God's power cannot move in your behalf. Everybody see that? God committed that to you. We are joint heirs. If we don't move, God can't move. And so things like death and stuff like that, those people, that is a man-made system. That car is a man-made deal. God didn't make cars. God doesn't do poor maintenance on them unless you go to believe in God for it, amen? That's a special thing. But I'm saying outside of you specifically praying over that car and letting God do miracles in your car, that is a natural man-given thing. And it runs under natural laws. If you violate the natural laws, you're going to get the natural results. God didn't do that. That is something under our authority and power. We have authority and power to, cre to invent things, to create automobiles. We have authority and power to create uh, all kinds of stuff, to create buildings. If a person falls off of a hundred-story building while it's being constructed, God didn't push them. God didn't do that. That man missed the beam, amen. <laughs> and that is a natural thing. God didn't do it, and God didn't allow it. That's under our own power. Now, I will say this, that God would have stopped that man if he was a believer operating in the Word because the Scripture says in Psalms chapter 91 that he shall give his angels charge over us. They shall bear us up in their hands, lest at any time we dash our foot against a stone. But if you'll read the first three verses of that chapter, it says it's only to those who are dwelling under the shadow of the Almighty, those who are living with the Lord, un living under his protection. For a believer, God would catch you. Amen. God would get you back on the beam. God would help you somehow. But a person outside of the Word of God, it's not that God allows it, that God did it. It's simply that God is not their God. God can't protect them. Even a believer, if that believer has rejected the counsel of the Lord and is not operating in the Word of God, you can tie God's hands and give place to the devil so that God can't protect you from things like that. That's how stuff like that happens. I've heard some people say that if you die, you know, well, death, man, that has to be God. God's the only one that has any power over death. Well, you read uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, and it says, Jesus came through death to destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. Jesus right there said the devil had the power of death. God's not the one in charge of all of this death. If a person dies under 70 years of age, God didn't take them, except in judgment. There is such a thing as a judgment of God upon an unbeliever, not a believer. God didn't take them. God promised us 70 years. It was not a maximum. It was not a ceiling, and you can verify that. It's in Psalms chapter 90, where Moses is the one that wrote Psalms chapter 90, and Moses said, The days of a man year shall be threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their, strength, their days labor and travail. Moses wrote that under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, and yet Moses lived to be 120 years old. His eyesight was not dim, nor his natural force abated. So that shows you that it was not a ceiling that God placed on man's lifetime. That was a minimum that God placed on the devil. If those people would respond to him and operate in his word, God promised a person through obedience at least 70 years. That is not a ceiling, it's a minimum.
Okay, martyrdom is an exception to that. Martyrdom is not God's will. But martyrdom is... I don't know exactly all there is about martyrdom, to tell you the truth. But if you're martyred for the cause of the Lord, that's a separate deal. But I'm talking about dying from sickness, old age, anything, or hardening the arteries or any of that kind of stuff, or, or car wrecks, stuff like that. God gave us 70 years. God doesn't take it. So it comes through the words. Your tribulations and problems do not produce faith and patience within you. That comes from the word. And unless you've been in the word, your tribulations are going to kill you. Unless you've been to boot camp before you get out in the battle, you're going to get killed in the battle. It's not going to perfect you or do anything good. So you had better adhere to boot camp. You better get into the Word of God and learn your lessons so that when trials and tribulations come, you'll be able to overcome them, not submit to them. Amen? Now let's look in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and I'll answer this question. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. This is a scripture that I've heard people use that may not know anything else in the Bible. They'll say, oh, I don't know. The Bible says somewhere, and they'll quote Romans 8, 28. I even heard a... a we read an article about these people, I think it was in South America, uh, South Africa, where some mercenaries came in and just uh, murdered everything uh, in their path. A bunch of missionaries were killed and butchered. And the mother of one of these missionaries was interviewed back here in the States. And she says, well, God's ways are higher than our ways. We know that all things work together for good, and I'm sure that he'll be able to preach the gospel somehow or another through my son's death. Now, that's what I'm warring against. That's the kind of thinking that we're trying to stop. God didn't do that to her son. You see that? And she was standing on this scripture, Romans 8, 28, and says, We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, first of all, the first thing to see about this, this follows, verse 28 follows verses 26 and 27. And it even has a conjunction at the front of the verse which says, And, which ties it directly back to what was just said, and verse 26 and 27 is talking about the Holy Ghost making intercession for you with groanings that cannot be uttered. If you're operating in the Holy Ghost and allowing the Holy Ghost to make intercession for you, that puts verse 28 in a different light. If you haven't been allowing the Holy Ghost to make intercession for you, verse 28 is not near as much to come to pass as if you have operated in the two verses in front of it. You all see that? And then also in verse 28, it did not say that all things came from God. Now, that's the way people have taken this verse to read. It didn't say that everything that happens to you comes from God. It doesn't. It simply says that if you love God and are the call according to His purpose, it puts two qualifications on it. If you love God and if you're the call according to His purpose, then all things will work together for good. It didn't say all things will come from God, but all things will work together for good. Now, first of all, I can say that Satan has tried to hit me with sickness and disease and poverty and things like that. I didn't believe that they came from God because his word doesn't teach that. Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. God didn't do it to me, but I stood in the midst of that problem. I resisted it. I rebuked the thing, and in the midst of it, my faith overcame it. My patience made me perfect and entire wanting nothing, and I today can use my examples of, of financial problems, sickness, and things like that as a testimony to you. It worked together for good. It came to kill me, but it worked together for good because I overcame it and resisted it through the power of the Lord. You see that? That's what that scripture is saying. It didn't say that everything will come from God, but it will work together for good if you love God. Your attitude ought to be, if a sickness hits you, you, instead of feeling oppressed and all this kind of stuff, you ought to say, you stupid devil, you, you blew it again. I, man, I'm going to resist you, and I am going to get a testimony. You've had it. Monday night comes, I'm going to stand up and tell everybody how I was delivered or whatever it was. Amen. Now, that's the attitude that you can have if you're operating in verses 26 and 27. And also, it lists two other qualifications in this verse. First of all, you have to love God. The Scripture says, James, 1 John chapter 2, verse 4, If you love me... Excuse me, that's John chapter 15, 14, verse 15, I believe it is. If you love me, keep my commandments. Also, 1 John 2, 4 says, He that says that he knows me and keeps not my commandments is a liar and the truth isn't in him. So if you love God, you're going to be keeping his word. So if you love God, this is talking about to a person that has been born again, to a person that is seeking to operate in the word of God. That's the first prerequisite. The second one is to those who are the called according to his purpose. 
You have to be operating in the calling that God had, His purpose. And what is the purpose of the Lord? Let's look in 1 John chapter 3, and it'll tell you in those exact words. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 8, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. It tells you his purpose right there. The purpose that Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus was not submitting to the devil. He fought him tooth and toenail. He fought him with everything that he had. So if you're the called according to his purpose, that means you're going to have to be resisting that thing that came at you, not submitting to it. And people that have taken this doctrine to say that everything that comes at me, God's doing it to make me perfect. It's teaching me a lesson. It's doing all of these kind of things. They are submitting to it. They are not fulfilling. They are not operating according to his purpose. And that thing will not work together for good. Again, I go back to Romans 6, 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants you are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If you submit yourself to a problem, believing that it's God that put it on you, you're fixing to get killed by the devil. You tie God's hands. God cannot move in your behalf. If you are rolling over and submitting to the thing, God cannot use his power to resist the thing. You have to resist it. And then when you take your step of faith, then God's power will resist it. Amen? And I guarantee you it'll work that way. Everybody see that? Does that answer? The 28th verse of Romans chapter 8. All right, another question about this is, somebody will say, what about the chastisement of the Lord? Let's look in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 says, Ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our own profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby." Now, this definitely teaches that there is a chastisement of God upon the believer. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. God will chasten you. But does this say that his chastisement is with sickness, disease, poverty, death, and all of these type of things? No, it doesn't. It does not say that God's chastisement is those things. And I can say from the Word of God that it can't be those things because God would violate the own atonement of his Son. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might be made rich. And that scripture makes it clear that it is a part of our salvation, the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ, financial prosperity. And if, you're opera, if God was to put poverty on you and make your business fall apart and make you poor to teach you something, then he would have gone against the atonement of his son. He, in effect, would have rebelled at his son and what his son accomplished and did. He would have acted at what his son came to destroy. You can sit down and just think a little bit and find out that that's not good thinking. That doesn't work. Same thing with sickness. By his stripes we were healed. Healing is a part of our atonement. God wouldn't turn around and put sickness on you to teach you something. Healing is just as much a part of our atonement as forgiveness of sins. Now, would you ever go out and say, well, God made me commit adultery because he wanted to teach me a lesson about how bad adultery was and wanted me to get out of it and never do it. You know better than that. God doesn't lead you to commit adultery. He wouldn't make you go do that so that you could learn a lesson. You say, God forbid. God doesn't want me out sinning. God wouldn't lead me to go murder somebody so I could better understand how the murderers have felt and I could deal with them. You know better than that. Well, in God's eyes, sickness is just as much a part of the atonement, healing rather, is just as much a part of the atonement as forgiveness of sins. 
God hates sickness just as much as he hates sin. God wouldn't any more put a sickness on you to teach you something than he would to put a sin on you to teach you something. God would no more put poverty upon you to teach you something than he would to put sin upon you to teach you something. They're all a part of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Also, let's look in Revelations chapter 2. It'll give you two examples here of chastisement. Revelations chapter 2, verse 16. It says, Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, he's writing to the seven churches of Asia. He's rebuking all but one of them. And in this one, he's writing to the church at Pergamos, and he said that if you don't repent, I'm going to come and fight against you how? With sickness, disease, poverty, death. You no, know, he said, with the sword of my mouth. The scripture says in Ephesians chapter 6 that take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. So what he's talking about is God was going to come and fight against them with the word of his mouth. Boy, he was going to rebuke them. The word of God is how God chastises us, and it will cut you. I guarantee you, I've had some people get plumb riled at me for ministering the word of God. The word of God is tough if you've got a pure heart. It is rough on you. And there's times that the Lord has rebuked me through the word, and it's just like Hebrews chapter 12 says, my chastening wasn't joyous, but rather grievous at the time. Nevertheless, afterward, it, it yielded the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them who were exercised thereby. It'll work, but I guarantee you it may hurt you at the time. It hurts me when I sit there and see that I have violated what God told me to do. It really does. And that is chastening, brothers and sisters. There's one other scripture I want you to see from right here. Third chapter, Revelations. He just rebuked the church at Laodicea and said that they were neither hot nor cold as lukewarm, and because they were lukewarm, he was going to spew them out of his mouth. Then he turned around and he said in verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Jesus said that he had chastened them. I just chastened you. How did he do it? With his word. He rebuked them and says, You're neither hot nor cold. What if God was to come to you tonight and say, Clarence, you are neither hot nor cold. I'm fixing to spew you out of my mouth. Boy, that would be chastening. Boy, it would to me. I don't know if I could take that or not. That'd be pretty strong. And I guarantee you, that is chastening. Also, another scripture, John chapter 15. Let's look at these scriptures. John chapter 15. I am the vine. I am the true vine. My father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now, people have taken this doctrine right there and have said, and they've taken all of these analogies, that we're like a vine. 15, 1 and 2 and 3. John 15, 1, 2 and 3. And they take the comparison and say, we're like a vine. And the way that you get a vine to bear more fruit is to purge it, to cut away some of the limbs and things like that, and let all of the sap produce. It'll produce larger fruit and stuff like that. Well, now, those comparisons are good, but the, but the things that they've drawn from it are wrong. This scripture says right there that he will purge it. And, and they say that God's going to cut away things that are hurt. He may take away your daughter. He may kill your son. Your child may be born mongoloid. Your child may be this, it may be that. But God did it. He's going to purge you. He's going to make you better. You'll bear more fruit through it. That is not what this scripture is saying. Nothing like it. It is a truth that he will purge you. He will cut away the things that offend He'll, when you purge, you cut off the dead limbs and things like that, the ungodly things, right? And so he is going to purge you, but look at the very next verse. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. It's no mistake that verse 3 comes after verse 2. Amen? He's talking about the same thing. If you'll look purge up in the dictionary, the word purge means to cleanse. If you'll look cleanse up in the dictionary, Billy Bob, this is how you know. If you look cleanse up in the dictionary, the word cleanse means to purge. Amen? So these two words are defined by each other. So right here when he says, now you're clean through the word which I've spoken unto you, you could put in there and say, now you're purged through the word that I've spoken unto you. The way he's going to purge you is through his word. The way you get cleansed of these things is through his word, which you could take many, many, many scriptures from the word of God and verify that. John 17, 17, now you're clean, I mean, excuse me, John 17, 17, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Thy word is truth. 
The truth is what's going to set you free. John chapter 8, If you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and truth shall set you free. Amen? So these scriptures show that it's through his word that God administers chastisement and correction. Now let me answer another question. Somebody will say, well, is that the only way you can learn? No, I'm not saying that this is the only way you can learn. I'm saying that this is God's way to learn. You can learn by hard knocks, but that is not God's way. I can take examples in my own life. I've had other people give me testimonies and they say, if I hadn't have received cancer, if I hadn't have had this, if this or that, I might have never turned to the Lord. I've heard people that after the doctors told them they were going to die, they got desperate and got to seeking the Lord, and they found God. And their whole life changed. And you can read testimonies. You can take testimonies. I'm not trying to slander people, but you can take your testimony of this girl, Joni, and other people that have talked about how this made such a tremendous transformation in their life, how they're so transformed as a result of it, that God did that because they are being perfected and used more than ever before. She may be being used more than ever before, but what was she doing before that accident? If she'd have been seeking, to the, seeking the Lord and turning to God and have doing what she's doing now and writing books and glorifying God, she could have been used before that thing more than she was right now. Amen? It is not her accident and her condition that's bringing glory to God. Sickness doesn't bring glory to God. Jesus died to redeem us from it. Amen? She's releasing faith in the midst of that problem. She's praising God in spite of it. She's got some peace, which may minister to some people, and it may be used partially, but it is nothing compared. Can you imagine if now she was to all of a sudden be instantly transformed and healed? Man, she'd make every news broadcast in the world. You can't tell me that she's glorifying God more through sickness and disease than she would through being well. If she is, then Jesus missed it in the ninth chapter of John where he looked at that man that was lame and he said, I must work the works of him that sent me. I've got to glorify God. And then he healed the man. If it would have been glorifying God, why didn't he make him sick? If it's glorifying God for everybody to be paralyzed, well, then let me come up here and I'll pray for you that you get paralyzed. Amen. If it's going to glorify God for you to have cancer, come up here and let's lay hands on you and give everybody some cancer so you can really glorify God. That's glorifying God. Walk through a hospital and see how edified you get. There's lots of it there. If that's going to edify you and if that's going to glorify God, man, you ought to be able to walk into a hospital and feel the glory of God every time you go in. And it's just the opposite. Man, I feel the oppression of the devil. Hatred, strife, fear, people dying and don't know what to do. It is not glorifying God. Now, there may be some glory come out of it, but it is not the sickness that's glorifying God. It's those people turning to God in the midst of that thing. And if they'd go all the way with God, God would get them out of it. Amen? Praise the Lord. I've seen some people that through their sickness or their problems or their marital problems or financial problems, they may have turned to the Lord and have cried out to God and they say, boy, if it hadn't been for that problem that God did, God knocked me flat on my face so that I couldn't look any way but up. That's not true. That problem was designed to kill them from the devil. Their cry to God is what produced the victory. Their faith that they released is what produced the victory. And brothers and sisters, you can do that without those problems. I'm a testimony of it. My life has been transformed. i got a long ways to go, but I've come a long ways, amen. And I have never said a cuss word in my life. I have never smoked a cigarette. I have never taken a drink. I have never done what most people consider as being bad and I am redeemed out of it. I don't want to do it. I'm never going into it. I didn't have to hit rock bottom before I realized that I was a sinner. God's Word, when I was eight years old, showed me that I was lost and going to hell, and I repented and asked God to forgive me, and I turned from it. One sin that I was knowledgeable of before that time. I'm sure I'd done more, but I mean one that God convicted me over. One sin that I was convicted of, I repented and turned, and I received my salvation and got born again. You cannot say that you have to go through all of that to be able to come to God. No faith is what does it. And you can turn to God when things are going good, if you will. Now, what do you, somebody might say, but yeah, what if you don't listen? You've got to learn somehow. Well, yeah, I'm not saying that the only way you're going to learn is through the Word. You may learn if you beat your head against the wall that it'll feel good to quit. <laughs> But I can tell you right now, without you running your head into that rock wall back there, that don't do it or it'll hurt you. And if you'll obey what i got to say, you don't ever have to go through that. Joshua's never been burnt because we spanked him. We had a heater when he was just crawling age. 
that he could have burned himself over the ball. We watched him, and every time he got within five feet of it, we spanked him and told him no. We administered our correction to him. He got a healthy respect for it, and to this day, he won't play with anything like that. He doesn't like it. He doesn't come around it. He's never been burnt, I don't think. Has he? Never been burnt. And it's because we corrected him. He did not have to learn it by hard knocks. You don't have to go through adultery to learn that adultery is wrong. You can look in the Word of God when it says, Thou shalt not commit adultery, don't do it, amen. When it says, Thou shalt not steal, don't steal. When it says, Thou shalt not kill, don't kill. And you can learn your lesson without having to go through that. But if you go through it and Satan puts it on you and if you get knocked flat of your back, if you got the good sense in the midst of your problem to call out to God, you might learn a lesson. But don't you go blaming God for what happened to you. Because if you do, it's going to warp your impression of God. You're going to get the feeling that he's a wrathful God. You're going to get the feeling like, I don't know if God's going to... Get... That's the reason that the religious realm, our concept, has been so polluted of what God is that most people think God's mad at them. They think that God's holding back. You hadn't suffered enough. You haven't been through it enough. You hadn't moaned and groaned and bawled and squalled enough yet. And you see, they think that you've got to do a certain amount of penance and all this kind of stuff. We need to get that conception gone. All you've got to do is say in the name of Jesus and release faith and it'll come to pass. Amen? Whether you're good, bad, or indifferent, you're getting it through the name of Jesus, not through your own righteousness. An example of what we're talking about, I think I've used this, but I'm going to use it again so that everybody will get this, is Joshua was helping me one time load lumber in Seagaville, Texas. Is this Mack truck. And anyway, he was helping me do that. He was about a year and a half, something like that, maybe two years old at the most. He was round and talking. He talked a lot earlier than Peter did. And uh, he was playing around in these storage bins, and he got sleepy and laid down in the dirt to go to sleep. And so I told him that I couldn't quit right then, and then uh, he, I knew he was sleepy, so I put him up in the cab of the truck, and I told him to lay down and go to sleep. And it was so hot that I had to roll the windows down. And it was too hot for him to sleep. Anyway, he got up and got the plane and leaning out that window and looking in this rearview mirror on the side and waving at me and playing and cutting up. And he thought it was funny. He was laughing. And I got up there and laid him down again. Then he got up and I was back there loading and he was looking out the window again, waving. So I finally I laid him down and I spanked him and I told him to lay down. And I corrected him. I administered my correction to him. Well, he got up and did it again, and this time before I could get up there and, and lay him down, he fell out of that window, and the cab of that truck was over my head. It was at least six foot tall. He fell out, hit his eye on the running board and his head right on the ground. And he could have hurt himself real bad through doing that. He was just a little kid. He didn't know how to catch himself, break his fall at all. He got a black eye, and we prayed over it, and it went away. And he, of course, started crying, and I prayed over him, rebuked any kind of bruises, concussion, or anything like that. And when it was all over, I said, Now, Joshua, that's what I was telling you. If you would have obeyed me, you wouldn't have fallen out of there. And I went ahead and taught him a lesson. Now, I didn't do that to him. I tried to stop it. I did everything within my power to stop him from falling out. But when he disobeyed what I said, he went ahead and got hurt, but it got his attention. And then I loved him so much that when he finally got ready to listen and he was calling out to me for help like, Daddy, what's wrong? How come it happened? You know, he was wanting some help. I loved him enough that I taught him a lesson through it. But I didn't do that to him. Now, if he'd have done what we've been talking about tonight, some people have said, he would have gone out and told all of his little friends, my daddy loves me so much that he allowed me to fall out of the cab of the truck, took a chance on me breaking my neck, getting a black eye, and he did that to teach me a lesson. Now, if he went around telling that, did you know the welfare would come haul me off? <laughs> it's the way you teach your kid not to go out and across the, the street in front of cars. It's the way you teach them is to shove them out in front of a car and let them get run over once or twice. You won't get to keep them very long. Somebody will come take them away from you if they live through it. That's not the way you train them. But if they got run over by a Mack truck and lived through it, I'm sure that they'd learn a lesson and never go get in front of one again. <laughs> but don't sit there and credit God, see, with the problem. I administered correction to him. That's like God administers his word to us and tries to stop us. If you don't obey the word of God, 
you're going to experience death. Satan's going to lord it over you. And if you get hurt enough that you finally come to and you cry out to God, God will love you and God will teach you a lesson. And you may come out of that thing better off for it. You may come out a thousand times better off. It may be a turning point in your life. But don't go blaming God for what happened to you. God did not do it. The Lord came to set us free. Satan's the one that came to steal, kill, and destroy. Now again, see, I said I did everything within my power to stop it. Some people would say, oh, but God had all power. God could have stopped me from doing this. Again, God has bound himself by his word. He's committed authority and power to you and me. And if you and I disregard God's instructions, you are headed for trouble on your own, and you will tie the hands of God, and you're going to experience death. Now, of course, there's repentance in it. And any time along the line that you repent, you can stop the force of death that's operating in your life. But I'm talking about if you don't repent, if you don't get back to operating in the Word of God, if you sow to the flesh, you will of the flesh reap corruption. Not that God put it on you, but that you're going to reap what you sow. It's a godly law that's been put forth. And God is not the author of these things that have come upon us. Now, what that will accomplish, if you'll believe this, it'll set you free from fear and doubt and reservation. Like, for instance, when I first started believing for healing, see, I came out of this kind of teaching that we were ministering against tonight, and all of y'all have to some degree or another, if you've been in religion any at all. And what happened, I'd come out of it, and I'd get to thinking when I had a sickness or something come, my first thought would be, oh, no, what have I done wrong? Right? Any of you ever thought that? If you hadn't, you just hadn't been a good religious person. <laughs> That's to your credit. Amen. I was a good religious, a bad religious person, however you want to look at that. But that was my first thought. Oh, no, what have I done wrong? Now, that's not a thought of power, is it? That's a thought of, uh-oh, that you aren't releasing any power. You're sitting still and looking at yourself, getting analytical, questioning. You can't release, release power while you're questioning. I nearly lost Joshua one time. He nearly died because I tried to resist the sickness. And I had just two weeks before that, or a week before that, I had stood up to a woman who was telling me that I was, what, she didn't say that I was of the devil, but what I was saying was of the devil, that I was wrong, and she got mad at me. And the first time in my life, I exercised what God had told me, and I refused to back down. And I stood up to her, and I said, I love you, but I am not wrong. And I ministered the word, and I countered her, and it got worse. My sister came in, tried to break us up, and Jamie tried to break us up, and Jamie says, you got mad at her? Boy, you have really lost your temper. I didn't get mad at her. I was saying it in love. I was just refusing to back down for the word. She was the one who was doing the screaming in my heart. But when Jamie, my sister, my mother, and everybody else started telling me I got mad, I got to thinking, did I really get mad? I got under condemnation, and I began to waver. And I wound up, with, when I was weak like that, Satan, see, he can, he's smart enough to tell what's going on. I got weak, and Satan hit us, and Joshua got sick. He was nine months old, and he could not even turn his head over. He didn't eat for over three days. And uh, anyway, he was just at the point of death, and he didn't have, he had a real high temperature. We don't know how high it was, because I don't, we don't, use a thermometer or nothing like that to find out how bad the devil's fighting us. We just were believing for healing. But anyway, it was to the point where I'd done everything I knew how to do. I was not going to the doctor. I was going to act like he was healed. I was going to stand on the Word, and yet it was evident that he's getting worse instead of better, and I thought, boy, that I was fixing to lose him. And I was under all kinds of condemnation. And anyway, what happened? The reason that it happened, I didn't understand this until about two weeks later. But the reason all of that happened was that I backed off the Word of God. I got under condemnation thinking, Lord, how could I have done that? How could I have hurt a lifelong friend? And when I was under that condemnation, when Joshua got sick, the first thing I thought, uh-huh, you did that. God did that because you were sitting there testifying that healing is of the Lord, that you don't have to be sick and you lost your temper and there. God did that just to show you. And as a result, that was in the back of my head. I was trying to resist that sickness, but at the same time in the back of my head, I was having this fear. But Andy, you deserve exactly what you're getting. You deserve anything you get. 
And finally, Marshall Townsley came over and sat on my stereo and rebuked me and said, you hypocrites, you preach to other people, believe and don't doubt and waver and don't look at yourself and this and that. And he read me the riot act. He let me have it. But what the Lord did through that, the Lord showed me what my problem was. I turned around and resisted it and quit doubting God. And I got rid of my condemnation within 10 minutes. He was healed. And he was all right, praise God. We hope that your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. Remember, Andrew Womack Ministries operates a helpline that you can call for prayer and information at 719-635-1111. We have a ministry website at www.awmi.net and you can write the ministry at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you will reach out by faith and receive everything that is yours through God's grace.